Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is uh, Tim Montgomery and I'm joined today by two Times columnists, Alice Thompson and Libby Purvis, and by our political correspondent, Laura Patel. And here are our three topics for this week. There's a generational difference over the Paris massacres. The young brought up being Hanukkah candles in nativity plays and going on school trips to mosques could never be Charlie. University magazines would never have accepted these cartoons. They're too racially and culturally insensitive for them. The older generation of 60s students, the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists, will always defend the right to offend. As three million copies of the magazine hit the world's newsstands with a profit on the cover again, which generation is right? Ed Miliband did nothing wrong by vowing to weaponise the NHS. At least, he did nothing unusual. His alleged comments were seized upon by David Cameron, but all politicians turned their strengths into political missiles. Miliband's only mistake was using the word in front of a journalist, handing the Tories an easy hit. Ed Miliband says Cameron's ducking it and running scared, and even Lord Tebbit says he's frit of having a television debate with the leaders. Mr Cameron is quibbling about minor parties, but I rather hope the whole thing runs into the sand. It isn't constructive, it isn't informative, it's a piece of tele-vanity, and the electorate are never impressed. Well, I'm really looking forward to debating that topic at the end um, of this podcast, Libby. And we also have the NHS, but we're going to start with the tragic events in Paris. Now, this is your topic, Alice, and you introduced this tension between an older generation who quite enjoys offending and regards it as their freedom to do so, and a younger generation, more politically correct generation, who are very sensitive to not offending people. You asked the question, which of these two generations will own the future? Uh, what's your answer, your own answer to your question? I think they can both learn quite a lot from each other. I think the young generation aren't respectful enough in a way of um, a whole question of being able to say what you want to do and talking at universities and being more open and, and the right to be offensive and the right to freedom of speech. But the older generation can learn quite a lot from the younger generation in the way that they are much more aware of different people's cultural backgrounds, where they come from, what they do, and much more open about it and uh, much more inclusive. And in that way, actually, I do rather admire them. Because one of the uh, criticisms, for example, of some of the abuse cases that have been uncovered in places like Rochdale is that there was too much political correctness and not enough probing of other cultures and too much cultural sensitivity. So there are just as much danger, potentially, about being politically t- being too politically correct yes, and, and being think- too respectful of cultural difference as actually 
really probing these I think issues. the children actually quite often do get the difference and you know I've got teenagers and younger children but they seem to get the difference between the idea of the fundamentalist and the terrorists and um, between religion and, and I'm quite impressed by that so they will make a division between that the whole time and they have a lot of friends if you live in London you will have a lot of friends who are either Muslim or Jewish or you know, they, they're much more aware of different cultures and they're living is, with different is cultures. that a London thing or do you think it's I think it happens in most cities I know friends who live in Devon or Yorkshire it is going to be different and but even then they're they're being taught in a different way now I think Libby Purvis I think Alice is making a really interesting observation I remember when the the Salman Rushdie fatwa first came out that I was one of the few people among my group of sort of uh, you know don't care middle class liberals and so on who was saying actually I know what blasphemy is I was brought up a Catholic you know and if there was somebody sort of urinating on a picture of the Virgin Mary and child and so on I'd be really uncomfortable mm -hmm. I'd be really upset I wouldn't want to kill anybody but I would be genuinely upset and it seemed unnecessary to be gratuitously upsetting about somebody else's religion so I think it's a very good point that Alice makes that nous ne sommes pas tout à fait Charlie you know mm. not not quite Charlie I mean mm. as far as resisting you know stupid crass violent actions yes of course we are but actually I think you're right I think a younger generation would would rather have shrunk from some of those cartoons, some of which were, I think, quite unpleasant. I'm not going to ask you your age, Laura, but you're definitely the youngest of our <laughs> gathering here today. And I'll reveal it. I'm 28. <laughs> so I don't know if that makes me young or not, heading rapidly towards 30. <laughs> um, you're part of the generation, the younger, more sensitive generation that Alice describes. Do you think you're getting it right, or do you actually quite respect the, the brutal sometimes brutal frankness of um, uh, that older generation Alice describes. Firstly, I'm not sure I agree entirely with the generational thing. I think there obviously is an element of it because each generation is situated in their own historical, social context and Britain has changed a lot over the last few decades. But I think you also see quite a political divide and, you know, let's not forget that young people, teenagers love provoking, outraging people older than them, but perhaps they do it in different ways to past generations. I can only talk about my personal experience with my friends in, in this case, and I have friends from different backgrounds, some of them Muslim, or Asian, or Jewish, or whatever, and I do think that, well, everybody I know would support the right to, they, they support the principle of free speech. I've seen a lot of conversations on Facebook and other social media sites about the importance of the context and who's doing the criticising. And I do have Muslim friends who feel hurt that a bunch of old white dudes, as they see it, at Charlie Hebdo, were criticising a group that was perhaps more oppressed, um, disadvantaged, traditionally marginalised in French society. And some of them have made the arguments that it matters who's doing the criticising. It, it kind of goes back to something I was writing about the other week in a different context, my, my campaign for the shrug, that basically we should all learn in all communities to say, hate that person for saying that, what a prat, what an idiot, never going to vote for him, never going to be in, in any sort of good relationship with him, but so what? You know, he's a, he's a twit. Hate him. You know, I think that we all need to learn to be less outraged about everything. And that goes across all communities. I think also when you look at what Laura was saying about politics, if you look at UKIP, they, they really do have a problem getting the young. And I think part of the reason is because they're seen as racist by the young. So I think there is an issue there. I think that Libby's very right that they don't want parties who are going to be too shrill or too too difficult, too too nasty. They do actually want people to get on and engage with each other and 
talk to each other. And I think, you know, if you look at UKIP, they are always going to have a problem with the young. Yeah, and for example, you had Nigel Farage the other day defending the use of word, the words chinky and pufta, <laughs> which is really, that really is generational. I think you'd find it hard to find somebody in their 20s who'd use that language now. And I guess when he did that, he knew that he was aiming it squarely at UKIP's older mm. demographic. And put it, putting breastfeeding mothers in corners and, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> and, and, and so is, is the consensus around this um, table, before we move on, that political correctness is generally a good thing? It's like the, the zero tolerance equivalent of, of lang uh, uh, in language. It's if you tolerate words or conversational attitudes that are homophobic or sexist or racist or whatever you are allowing a space in society for those sort of I attitudes I don't think you should legalise against it because I think if we've become too no, tough I don't think we're no proposing legal action but, but we generally think but generally it's a, I think it is a good thing yes actually yeah. it's a good thing but it shouldn't be a compulsory mm. thing yeah for me it's it's a good thing both sides need to show more understanding of each other's perspective Okay, well, we'll move on to the political issue that gave Labour a real boost um, last week. Um, Laura, you suggested the National Health Service as a topic for us, and in particular this charge that um, David Cameron made against Ed Miliband, that uh, he apparently the Labour leader confided in an interview with the BBC political editor Nick Robinson that he wanted to weaponise the National Health Service. David Cameron said this was an outrageous thing to do, although I think a biography by Janan Ganesh of the Chancellor of the Exchequer shows that the Tories actually have used that expression in the past. But you don't have any problem with the idea of weaponising issues at all? I guess my point was that politics by its nature is about weaponising issues in our country and I find this whole row about whether or not Ed Miliband used this word rather phony and tedious. Are you saying that some of the political debates in this country are phony? <laughs> <laughs> no. no. Politicians aren't as outraged as they pretend to be. We have lots of important <laughs> debates but this particular one about the use of this word doesn't really get me going. Um, both sides obviously weaponise all sorts of issues. I mean the Tories have done it a lot over welfare, the deficit and you know Labour take their issues in turn. Rachel Sylvester in her column today on Tuesday talks about how she wishes that they would sort of put aside such silly things and talk about serious issues like the need to better integrate social care with the NHS and she sort of longs for this political consensus on the subject and say as you know the party should get together and admit this is a big problem. That's probably wishful thinking. I think it's the way our democracy works, people have big arguments about subjects like this. For me, where you have to draw the line is, um, I don't like it when parties lie about things and distort the truth when they're doing their weaponising and making their political arguments. And I think there are also some subjects that are, that are off limits. I thought of some examples like, I didn't like it when George Osborne took the case of Mike Philpott, that unemployed father who was jailed for killing his children in a house fire and said that he showed what was everything that was wrong with the welfare system in Britain. So there are limits for me, but let's get real. Weaponising sensitive subject is what politicians do. Isn't the basic problem, uh, moving aside from the very specific issue of weaponising, isn't the sort of the basic frustration that whatever is going wrong in the National Health Service at the moment, and clearly there are some real pressures on the system, it is complicated. And for Ed Miliband to just sort of be throwing sort of uh, the Tories don't care about the NHS, they're going to ruin it over the next five years. It's that sort of basic partisan silliness, and the Tories are guilty of it in other respects as well. That's really what turns people off, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that there's an element of truth in that, in that it doesn't help when they just sort of peddle lies. You know, Labour have been making a lot of claims recently about the Tories wanting to privatise the NHS, which isn't true. And as we know, Labour actually began 
the process of bringing private companies in to run bits of the NHS. But I would counter that, look at the way David Cameron has used the NHS in Wales as a stick with which to beat Ed Miliband. So they're both guilty of it. Libby Purvis, I think probably from around this table, you are the least of us involved in (laughs) day-to-day political obsession. What have you made so far of all of this? It just feels like, I mean, the whole use of that terrible expression it's a load of blokey jousting and and tit for tat and and willy waving i hate it I mean, the, <laughs> to say you want to weaponize the nhs even casually when talking to a huh, safe person like a bbc news editor uh, you know what it says is not we're worried about the nhs we really want to do good things for it we are worried about what the conservatives mm. are planning and when we have different plans that's one thing but what the word weaponizing says is oh look nhs handy stick to beat the tories with and then we can get into power mm. it's horrible it's so it's that kind of pointless competitiveness and, and nastiness which has crept into politics on both sides and yes of course the tories you know behave just as badly but i hate it call me a girl if you like i hate it does it it makes you feel uh, less of ed Miliband, or as you say they're all at it so you just turns you off politics full stop Oh, I just think he's so clumsy. Uh, I mean, it's it's the clumsiness of allowing that to slip out of your mouth. That's, you know, David Cameron. Say what you like about him, but he's really good at pretending to be a lovely guy. <laughs> Are you <laughs> suggesting he may not be a lovely I guy? I have no idea. I've never <laughs> met him really. I judge them on what they do by their fruits. Shall you know them? But uh, I don't think Ed Miliband is very good at pretending to be a lovely guy. And unfortunately, in politics today, this seems to be the the main talent required. How damaging, Alice Thompson, is this NHS row for the Conservatives? They began last week launching their dossiers. They wanted the... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. New Year to all be about Labour's allegedly profligate spending plans. We have a story on the front of Tuesday's Times talking about £170 billion of extra debt if Labour comes into power. But it hasn't worked out that way, really. The, most of the front pages uh, for most of the papers over the last week have been about problems in the National Health Services, which is where Labour wants the conversation to be. I think it is damaging for the Tories, partly because so many people do use the NHS, so it's not some faceless discussion. They all love talking about the NHS. They've all got someone who goes and 
rather extraordinary in a way when you talk to most people about the NHS and you look at the polls, they do think it's a very good organisation. They do think they've consistently had good care in the NHS, but they hear all these terrible stories and they get more and more worried. Mm. And having spent a you know, we did a series, Rachel Sylvester and I, on the NHS just before Christmas. It was obvious it was going to happen. That's what's extraordinary to me. We knew the NHS was going to be in crisis this Christmas. So did Jeremy Hunt. So did David Cameron. And so I think they should have headed it off earlier. And the biggest problem for both the parties... What, what do they do, though? Well, actually, they've both got plans, and they're very good plans. So there is a consensus. They all know that social care needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. They all know which hospitals are working which aren't. They've all gone round these hospitals. They've all gone down to Torbay and looked at the perfect example of where it's working. And yet, because they're so involved in the election campaign, they can't actually put any of this in place. So they're so worried about their mudslinging and their campaigns and what they're doing that they're not actually thinking this through so i think there should so you're be saying jeremy consensus. hunt is a part-time health secretary if there is a solution tall bay hospital is replicated across the country why doesn't he just do it i don't well, understand that's what they all want to do so it is extraordinary in a way that there hasn't been more consensus because they do all have similar views on the nhs mm. that's what's so bizarre i think if you're not following the day-to-day minutia you're thinking why on earth don't they just get together and do something on this and um this is an all-female panel and so um i perhaps should intervene in your uh, Libby's attacks on willy-waving politicians and their high terrestrial campaigns. But, Alice, would it make much difference if there were more women in politics? Do you think the kind of weaponisation problem that has been attacked and identified by Laura would be different if um, we had some more... I think there's some um, pretty feisty um, women as well as feisty men, actually. <laughs> Two words, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've had a lot of very strong politicians, but I don't think she would have used quite the same words either. I think weaponise is quite a masculine word, actually. Mm-hmm. And I also think she was very empathetic in many ways. She, when you, you listen to her and you... you know, I, I interviewed her various times. And I think it, it's very difficult because you can understand they are in election mode now and they do want to talk like this. And I've heard women talking in the same way. They all use the same jargon. Yeah. But I do think they're, you know, probably wrong to do to use that kind of words, and even to, in a way to think it. I mean, we've been talking earlier about you should be allowed to think what you want, but in a way, once you start thinking along those lines, you do start forgetting that the real people are using the NHS and that, you know, they're going through this whole winter as well as the politicians. And also that real people are working inside the NHS. Mm. I mean, it's I, one have, and a half I have, million. have and have had several relatives inside the NHS, and they feel very mm. threatened a lot of the time. They do tend to hate the management structures and, mm. and the way it's run, but they, you know, the, the constant bashing of it actually it, it has a terrifically bad effect on morale. Do the constant bashing from who? The constant bashing from from all directions, from from media, you know, sometimes from from politicians and so on. You know, the bad example will be held up, you know, mm. and all the nurses who actually are sort of working well, mm. uh, you know, feel feel that they're they're being uh, they're being degraded. It's very similar to what happened to teachers. Mm. You know, that the teaching profession got massively, massively demoralised under under the Conservative government. Yeah. You know, that they, they were constantly told that they, they were sort of terrible people. The and public so on. still but loves NHS there. workers though for all this bashing, don't they? Uh, to a point up to a mm. point i think i think it has its effect i think they look at gps now and think oh you're quite lazy you know you're not well paid very well paid and that is part of the campaign isn't it yeah. but laura, laura final word to you on this uh, topic uh, it's a it's a strong issue for labor the national health service uh, david cameron has hit back with this weaponizing charge do you think it's blunting labor's attack um not really i think most people as we've extensively discussed see this as a bit of a silly row it was a bad choice of word but I just think we're kidding ourselves if um, we think that politicians aren't going to use issues where they're strong and this NHS crisis is pretty worrying for the Conservatives so I'm pretty sure we'll see 
Ed Miliband keeping on. We'll maybe discussing this again over the 14 weeks left between now and polling day. And of course, will we in those 14 weeks have election debates? I have a bet with Adam Bolton of Sky that I will have a big bottle of red wine if the debates don't happen. He says they will, but I'm beginning to think I'm going to win my bet. Um, and I think you hope I do as well, Libby, because you are not a fan of the debates that we had between the three party leaders last time. I'm not. I mean, I think the, the, the only effect that I particularly noticed that they had was to turn Nick Clegg into some kind of, of clean-cut Superman hero, you know, because he looked really good. Well, that was fine. But I, I think they I are... think that's the best argument, you know, I've heard against the debates. <laughs> if people like the debates, you've got to remember, they fell in love with Nick Clegg because he's of the debates a... last time, and he hasn't exactly been a very popular he's person not since. not a bad man, and he's done some good things and had some good influences. Won't hear a word <laughs> against him. Well, not many words, anyway. But listen, uh, it, it's... They seem to me to be to be pointless, a piece of real television vanity. And more importantly, they are presidential. They give you the impression that you vote for this guy who is standing here at this lectern in a rather nice tie and and speaking rather fluently. And you're not. I mean, if they were going to have a television debate, right, OK, let's have the education secretary and the shadow education secretary. And then tomorrow night for another five minute or 10 minute, 15 minute ding dong, let's have the home secretary and the shadow home secretary. Mm. Let's get back to a they sense. They do do those sorts of, of debates. Certainly, I remember the daily politics doing sort of. Yeah, but that's, that's on that's on programs time. which, you know, watched by television six men and a no, but television programmes where people have invited them in to debate right. with each other, and that's fine. But this idea that there is the big debate mm -hmm. where the leaders go head to head, I think is is unproductive and pointless. I mean, even Tim Bell agrees with me. Gosh, is, is, is that are you pleased with uh, that? I, I have no views. Um, <laughs> uh, I, my, my followers, my followers may follow me wherever they wish. Laura Patel is. Desperate to get in. I think she's disagreeing. We're about to disagree with you very strongly, Libby. I am. <laughs> I'm really in favour of these debates. I really think it would be absurd if they didn't happen. First of all, I want to take issue with the point about Nick Clegg, because it's true we saw the phenomenon of Clegg mania during the debates, but um, actually the Lib Dems only did one point better and they had fewer MPs, so it didn't go that well for them. In oh, that yeah, it sense. depends. What would it have been, though, without the debate? Mm. I think it would have been a tough contest between the two parties. The Lib Dems would have been squeezed, and what happened was that Nick Clegg wasn't squeezed because of the debates. He, so you're blaming it for the Tories not winning majority? Well, I think it contributed. <laughs> and if I was David Cameron, I would do exactly what he's doing. I'd say, of course I want to participate in the debate. I just want the Greens involved. But well, of course, he's being of course caught he out doesn't. because now we've had um, a consortium of, of newspapers and YouTube have proposed a debate with the Greens. The Greens have said yes, and David Cameron was asked about it this week. And he yeah. said, Oh, well, think about it. Who's <laughs> wriggling like an eel now? I just think that the this election, because the polls are so so close and because all the parties are so obsessed with media management, everything is going to be incredibly tightly controlled. 20 million people watched the last debate and I love the idea of the sort of unpredictability. Everything, could, every, Anything could happen in these and I think that it just would be a travesty they, they didn't, didn't take feel, place. They didn't feel unpredictable to me. They felt utterly choreographed. I mean, everything was felt choreographed and practised. But how do you explain the fact that so many people watched them if they, if they were Because they were a novelty. I mean, that, I think the problem for us as journalists, when I don't know if you covered it last time around, but when I covered it five years ago, it was a complete nightmare for journalists because the only thing that anyone was interested in was the debate. So every time a politician went anywhere else around the country, it was completely ignored. And so 
But actually what really mattered, which was the proper discussion and going around and, and looking at issues and discussing it, was completely irrelevant. What matters, we wrote endless articles on the colours of their ties, who'd won which debate, who looked who better, was best who'd at looking best better. into the camera. Yeah, and, and it became completely farcical by the end. Mm. And you thought, actually, this is not really what I want to write about in politics. And I thought it really debased it in the end, having been very pro it at the beginning. My, my, my problem with them is... Um, I think it almost turns elections into like a knockout football mm. tournament and it's like the FA Cup and so thing is the person who wins the FA Cup at the end of the season is not necessarily the best team they may just struck lucky you know the team that's the best at the end of the season is the one that's won the league the one that's performed week in week out and debates I think alter the calculation in an, in a, in a, in and also the necessary you an, can't an say that way. a prime minister who's good at a debate is going to be good as a exactly, prime minister yeah. that's something I, I think is so different L L Laura Nigel Harris, Farage Laura's would be prime minister probably the best <laughs> debater of the four I, uh, but Laura was saying so many people watch them but I think you only have to watch Gogglebox to remember how people actually watch television it will have been quite off and on in the corner with people going yeah yeah and throwing their rubber TV brick at it like we do in our house um, do you really throw things at your uh, television a, I thought this you, was you can a get legend. a rubber brick it looks exactly like a real brick <laughs> You throw it at the screen, it's it. So I, I think, I think people. Thrown anything I don't the think there was kind of close and thoughtful attention among all the many, many people who watched them. As oh look, you know they're doing this debate thing. You know, I, I, I don't. I really don't think they made a difference. Next thing you'll be saying is that people don't read our columns. The first sentence and then the conclusion <laughs> at the end, and, and really in between, you know, little bows. I just find it, it arcane not to have them. It's a bit like the idea that when we didn't have TV in Parliament before, or. TV is the most popular entertainment medium in this country and I agree with Alice that it's not good for us as newspaper journalists you do end up with the whole campaign cycling around these events but I'm going to selflessly make the argument <laughs> <laughs> for having them anyway but wasn't the part that we could have a, a compromise I think this is what the broadcasters are proposing because last time the problem was they were in the actual campaign weren't they they were in the three weeks leading up to polling day there was one a week I think the proposal this time is to have them a little bit before perhaps one in March one in April or whatever perhaps even one in February if they can get agreement quickly enough. So they are less oxygen sucking out of the whole of the election campaign. But I think, Tim, well, you've just put your finger on what's going to be the real problem this campaign is it's going to go on and on and on. I mean, when you start talking about... I'm looking forward to it. I, I think I might be the only person in the country who's looking forward to this endless election campaign. I love politics. I think <laughs> I'm looking great. forward to it. But I do think that the, the first day after the new year when they all came back and had their sort of rival press conferences slagging each other off was not a great start. No, I, I do I wonder, think I can't do this for the next four months. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder if people are just going to get fed up. What is going to be more interesting, the election campaign, Laura, or the aftermath of the election campaign? It could be... Well, uh, obviously, it depends on the result, but yeah. I suspect that the aftermath yeah. might be completely Lots of coalition negotiations. Yeah, and, and we can expect it to go on a lot longer than it did last time. They stitched it all up in five days last time because of the economic situation and also the novelty of it all I think everybody is going to be a lot more cautious this time so who knows how long it would take to form a government okay so we're going to nearly and I'm going to give you each two trivia questions well the two just questions yes or no answers please will the debates happen Libby yeah <laughs> Laura mm, no no Alice I think I, I would be a no um, as well and should the Greens be invited in to make them happen Alice I just don't think they're going to happen that's okay Laura yes they should be I suppose Libby. they should be 
you, you, your lack of enthusiasm <laughs> this debate is, um, is, is something I share uh, <laughs> Libby but um, that is all we have time for this week thank you very much to Libby Purvis Laura Patel Alice Thompson my producer Dave Maguire most of all to you for listening and if you are a Times subscriber and if you're not why not please go to the time.co.uk slash comment central where you can access some links to some background articles for the subjects we've been discussing until next week goodbye thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk your history is a new podcast brought to you from the times and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk which have been published for over a century In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.